I'm not a singer, but I'm not embarrassed to sing, so I'll embarrass my kids right now. Some want the crown, but they won't bear their cross. But it takes your everything to serve the Lord. Some want bright mansions, but they won't pay their cost. But it takes your everything to serve the Lord. It takes your hands and your head and your heart. It takes your all. It takes a full surrender to serve the Lord. It takes your time and your means and your prayers lest you fall. It takes everything to serve the Lord. Contrast two statements with me. A colleague and friend over lunch explains the difference between religious people and spiritual people. Religious people are afraid of going to hell. Spiritual people have already been there. Contrast two statements with me. In a chapter where author Reggie McNeil discusses the increasing loss of church membership, he writes, a growing number of people are not leaving church because they have lost faith. They are leaving the church to preserve their faith. Contrast these two statements. Feel the tension. Live in the dichotomy. How long do you need to pause to take in the discomfort? Do they force you to contemplate? Do you take offense at these statements? Do you feel the need to defend the righteous, the religious? Do you feel the need to defend the church? Well, even during this festal season, on the 11th day of Christmas where we gather to worship, and without the fear of going to hell, I decline to defend organized institutional religion. Personal experience forbids it. More importantly, church history forbids it. The organized church often apologizes for its past wrongs. It apologized for the Crusades. It apologized for the pogroms. It apologized for defending the depraved, uneconomical institution of Pan-African slavery. And believe me, one day it will apologize for its stand against the ordination of women into the gospel ministry. Here, our contrasting statements disturb us in part because they express troubling truths about religious institutions in general. And they disturb us also because people are bold enough to express them. This boldness speaks to a new development in the crisis of faith, secular voices, boldly interrupt the 12 days of Christmas with a New Year's celebration. Enough with the sacred, let's get back to work. But Christmastide invites Christians all over the world to counter back with equal boldness. Christmas is not a time where we need to cower in the hopes of making faith relevant to the world. We need not reduce the role of Christian faith to being that of the traditional patron of the arts. 
we need not reduce the mission of the church to semi-annual theatrical storytellings of Christmas and Easter. We need not reduce worship to the task of displaying beautiful bell choirs for Christmas musicals. There is more to the spiritual walk of Christian faith. And with this more, we shock our culture's sensibility. I don't have time to tell every reason why I believe there is more to the mission and message of the church. What I will tell you is that the awesome story of Christmas, a story that the church proclaims for 2,000 years now, teaches the infinite value of human life. And it teaches this unapologetically. To believe it, you cannot be lazy. You need a deep probing faith, faith to believe beyond the creeds of church community. And to receive its message, you need deep-seated spirituality, often forged in the hellish fires of temporary disappointment with God. The Christmas story calls for radical faith and radical spirituality. It calls us to believe that heavenly angels, even now, watches over infants on dark, cold nights in desert places. To believe that proud Persian philosophers from the region we call Iran today and humble Jewish shepherds from the region we call Palestine today share a common hope in the child of an unwed teenage mother. It calls us to believe that all national hopes and dreams rest not in the palaces and executive offices of civil and state houses, but rest in a cattle's feeding trough, which became a makeshift crib for a poor Jewish infant. It calls us to believe not that God is great, but that God is little and vulnerable and in need of humans to assist for shelter and food and clothes. It calls us to believe that our cosmic companion is present and participates in our reality today. John's gospel opens with a call to contemplate the significance of this child from Bethlehem. And it does so by taking us beyond the genealogies of Matthew and Luke, which identify the royal pedigree of this child. John invites us to reflect on the primordial progeny of this little newborn when he writes these words, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. Did you hear it? John invites you and I to contrast, not two different statements, but to contrast two different ways of living. He reminds us that God's original abode was utter darkness. The creation story begins with God in a totally dark reality. 
God moves faster than the speed of light and therefore remains undetectable. So for John, creation commences as an act of God's mercy. In mercy, God slows down the divine life just a bit, enough to make room for a world that could detect his glory and then light dawns. And so John says, we have seen his glory. The glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. For John, the dominant and central metaphor signifying the Christmas event is the image of light overcoming darkness. The Christmas story invites all to catch a glimpse of God's activity in our world today. God's light has dawned. So what is the appropriate response to the coming light of God in the world? I invite you to contemplate three questions about John's metaphors of light and darkness with me. First, contemplate this question. What makes you think that you can endure the darkness? What makes you think that you were meant to live in darkness? Our culture increases in apathy toward God. Now, apathy is worse than hostility. The ancient world respected the Christian faith enough to be hostile to it. A person hostile to you at least takes you seriously. A person apathetic to you doesn't think that you are worth taking seriously. Our culture learns to adapt to the way things are. We love to talk about our reality. We make a truce with evil. We accommodate, we adjust, we attune, we compromise, and we accustom ourselves to the darkness of this world. And then without knowing it, we too are utterly closed in upon ourselves and we end up in a total unsocial reality. Years ago, I was sent on a mission with the Adventist World Radio. I traveled to Lalibela, Ethiopia. A gentleman named Achenef graciously hosted Pastor Sam Misani, Pastor Rudy Salazar, and myself. He guided us on tours. I wish you could see those monolithic churches in Lalibela, Ethiopia, one of the country's most ancient holy cities. He invited us to his home. We ate, we conversed. I told him that I named my daughter after the royal title held by the ancient Ethiopian queens. He read in Ge'ez the story of the Ethiopian eunuch to us. Soon we realized the lateness of the hour and our need to return back to the hotel. As we began to leave, Achenef reached back to hold my hand. But immediately, foolish me, macho American me, I pulled my hand back away from him. Holding my hand, what's this? He apologized. But as we walked through the threshold of the door, the moment I stepped out of the house, 
I immediately reached for Achenev's upper torso, grabbed his arm, slid down, and held tight his hand. See, Achenev understood that I did not understand. In most of Lalibela, you will not find street lights. I did not know that the walk back to the hotel, I would have been faced with blackness upon blackness, the thickest darkness of a moonless African night sky you can ever imagine. I was arrogant, I was foolish. When a person hides themselves from everyone but themselves, light never reaches to them. They go walking in darkness, night after night becoming more used to it. Soon they realize, soon he realizes, soon she realizes that darkness is unsocial. In this place, your reality becomes a fantasy. Your righteousness becomes proof that you have shut light out of your life. In this place, you think it is not the great blessing that God should detect all the darkness that is in me. In this place, you say, let me be. Let me hide in my own darkness. I am used to it. I prefer it. No. That's the good news of John. No. John says you cannot be self-absorbed. Your dark, unsocial reality is not the reality that you were created for. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Second, what makes you think that you really desire God's light? One Christmas holiday, while on break from boarding school, I watched a fictional movie on the life of Barabbas. I don't know if any of you seen this life, a recidivist Barabbas. He doesn't need a second chance, he needs multiple chances. This character was played by Anthony Quinn. And there was a scene in the movie when after being condemned to the sulfur mines in a big earthquake, the mines crash in. Anthony Quinn, playing Barabbas, emerges from the sulfur mines where he has been working. A prisoner who survives an accident working in sulfur mines. For the first time in years, he comes into the sunlight. And when he emerges into the light of day, he cannot bear the power of the sun's rays. You think God's light is a flashlight to help you find things that you want. You think it's a spotlight to shine on the bad deeds of your enemies. You think it's a stage light where you showcase your religious performance. My suspicion is that our natural reaction to God in God's fullness would be like that scene in the movie Barabbas. We emerge only to be overshadowed with a light, light from which we want to but cannot escape. God's light, given in its fullness, exposes everyone's defects as it disinfects everyone's disease. Like the light of the sun, God's light in its fullness does not, will not, and cannot discriminate. 
John's Christmas story makes room for this truth. He understands that God's light arrives to us in ways that sometimes are undesirable. So he writes of Jesus these words. He was in the world. Listen to John's Christmas story. He was in the world. And the world came into being through him. Yet the world did not know him. This is John's Christmas story. He came to what was his own and his own people did not accept him. If this was true of the arrival of the light in Bethlehem many years ago, what makes you think that you desire God's light today? Ponder that question. So then you should contemplate the questions. What makes you think that you can endure the darkness and what makes you think that you really desire God's light? But you should also contemplate the last question, especially at those moments where you're trying to break new ground and trying to break up the fallow ground of hard-heartedness. The question, what makes you think that you deserve God's light? New Year's resolutions are where we try to leave the past behind. And do you know, to really do this oftentimes in our social relations, we have to employ the weapon of forgiveness. One Advent season over a decade ago, as we were approaching Christmas, I took my young nephew and my younger children to the Glendale Center Theater to watch A Christmas Carol where I saw you the other day. That play entitled by Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol. When the play began, I knew I was in for an adventure. I was trying to be a daddy who was going to give mom free time and I brave taking these little kids to this play. The ghosts in the story about Ebenezer Scrooge caused my two youngest children to instantaneously jump into my lap and grab me around the neck with fear. But the real unexpected twist of the evening came when I, wondering if the kids got the message, I asked them, did you understand the, the message of the play? And to my surprise, they understood it clearly and they were pretty young. Ebenezer Scrooge is visited by the ghost of Christmas past, the ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas future. My children recognize that by his actions in the present, Ebenezer Scrooge could affect the future for himself and for others. Being the preacher that I was, I jumped at the opportunity to relate the message of Charles Dickens to the message of the gospel of Jesus. I told them, you know Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Well, he was the biblical Ebenezer Scrooge on steroids. He needed more than a New Year's resolution. He needed a new life resolution. And when he was visited by the one who was the child of Christmas past, present and future, he came to realize that his present decision to follow Jesus would not only affect the future, 
but his decision to repent would affect his past as well. Church, forgiveness is God's way of creatively working in our world anew every day. I suspect that God's light is like forgiveness. It is a gift of grace, undeserved, for a world, a dark world, not ready to receive it. And yet, in the incarnate God of Jesus, the child from Bethlehem, God offers light, but he doesn't offer it in its fullness. Rather, like the light from a dimmer switch, it gradually helps us to adjust ever so slowly to his glory. He comes first as a helpless, adorable babe, then as a driven young adult, then as a crucified yet innocent criminal, then as a resurrected life-giving spirit, and now as a reigning cosmic ruler. We could not take it all in at once. John understands that the light of God emerging through the dimmer switch of the incarnation is our gift of grace today. He writes, it is from the fullness of Jesus that we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Given the questions I proposed, about the metaphors of light and darkness. Why did John choose light as the dominant metaphor for his gospel? Because John wants you and I to know that the plan of the creator God is that cosmic light would overshadow cosmic darkness. That the plan of the redeeming God is that moral light overcomes moral darkness. That the plan of the eternal reigning God is that spiritual light overcomes spiritual darkness. And finally, John wants us to believe that this plan begins not big, but very little with the birth of a babe from Bethlehem, Jesus Christ the child. And so he ends by saying to all who received him, who believed in his name, are given power to also become children of God, born not of blood or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but the will of God. Merry Christmas to you all.